Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 168, Muslims in 19th Century Bulgaria. Now, first, I want to thank Svetla Yankova for becoming a patron and Mary Teresa Howell for increasing her support. Also, a shout out, shout out to Grace's mother. Uh, Grace is a new Fulbright grantee who I met at a recent kind of welcome dinner for new Fulbright grantees, and she mentioned that her mother was a fan of the podcast, so shout out to Grace's mom. Now, before we properly begin season eight, I wanted to include this special episode diving into the perspectives, experiences, and challenges faced by Bulgaria's Muslim population in the decades following semi-independence from the Ottoman Empire. It's going to largely derive from the book Between Empire and Nation, Muslim Reform in the Balkans by Milena Metodieva, a historian at the University of Toronto. Now, in her book, she rightly points out that the story of Bulgaria's Muslim population in this time is vastly overshadowed by the story of the Bulgarian state and nation sort of building themselves up, despite the fact that, you know, about a quarter of Bulgarian's population were Muslims when it gained its partial independence, and this was after about two-thirds of Bulgaria's Muslims fled the country during and after the Russo-Turkish War of 1878-9. Now, by comparison, Greece and Serbia each had about a 2% and 1% Muslim population when they gained their independence. So all that is to say, you know, Muslims made up a far dramatically larger portion of Bulgaria's population. So logically, they played a much larger role in Bulgaria, just the Bulgarian state and, you know, Bulgarian history during this period. And I felt that, you know, they deserved more attention. And, you know, this is that kind of history that can be a little difficult to cover during the regular narrative because it's rather amorphous and spread out. There isn't a clear, easy time to talk about it. So I decided on this special episode. So Bulgaria faced unique questions as to how it should handle this enormous minority population, which, again, its neighbors didn't really have. In fact, the legal status of Muslim minorities was a major distinction between different Ottoman successor states. The agreement recognizing Serbia's independence required its Muslim population to leave, while the Treaty of Berlin spent quite a lot of words establishing distinct and specific minority rights in Bulgarian lands. But the ethnic Turks, Pomaks, Romani, and Tatars, as well as others of Bulgaria, all were Bulgarian citizens, and as such an integral part of Bulgaria's story and their experiences were quite interesting and unique relative to their Christian countrymen. In particular, in general, they faced a quite difficult question. Where did they fit between the rising Bulgarian nation-state and the declining Ottoman Empire? Between rising Turkish nationalism within the Ottoman Empire and, well, Bulgarian nationalism in Bulgaria? Deeply tied into these questions is also the simple question about what their relationship was to the growing ideas around modernity, whether, again, it's uh, modern ideas of nation-states or just modern ideas about how you know, society should function. Should they try to assimilate? Should they protect their cultural, linguistic, and religious differences? 
Should they work to maintain connections with the Sultan and the Ottomans, or should they support the growing reform movement within the Ottoman Empire? A written statement issued by the newly formed Muslim Teachers Association of Bulgaria in 1907 summarized their feelings about their experiences in the decades following 1879. It wrote, quote, In short, we Turks, who have a glorious past and illustrious history, are nowadays condemned to live poor, humbled, and abused in our homeland among our other compatriots. In this poverty and degradation, we cannot assert our rights and honor before anyone. Even though we are the children of this homeland, we are in the condition of being a foreign element. We live as strangers in our own homeland. Why is that? It's all because of ignorance, because we are intellectually ill-equipped. Now, I think this statement gives us an interesting glimpse into the perspective of Bulgaria's Turkish minority, although, you know, it's it's obviously specific because it's coming from a teacher's association. So shockingly, they see education as being the, the main cause of the difficult circumstances that this minority finds itself in. But, you know, from their perspective, they've been living in, you know, what are now Bulgarian lands for many, many centuries. To them, this is their homeland just as much as it is the Bulgarians. And you can argue about how valid that is. But you know, they see this as their homeland and yet they are strangers. It's a tragically common circumstance in the Balkans during the, the 19th century and into the 20th century. You know, very often people who've lived many, many centuries in places suddenly become foreigners, become strangers and are often forced to leave. Now, Mithodieva points out that Bulgaria had to approach its Muslim minority population carefully as it, along with the Christian Slavic populations of neighboring Ottoman territories, could be seen as kind of hostage populations, often used as political pawns by the governments in Sofia and Constantinople alike. So again, you know, if Bulgaria were to treat its Muslim population badly, then the Ottomans would likely respond by mistreating their Christian populations in places like Macedonia and Thrace. So yeah, each side had a kind of incentive to being kinder than they may have otherwise been. As we discussed in the regular episodes, there were many attempts to encourage Muslims to leave Bulgaria after 1879. These took the form of trials of those involved in atrocities during the war and the April uprising, or more subtle techniques like only issuing emigrating Muslims temporary travel, travel documents so they would not be able to return. Often, Muslims interested in returning to their homes now inside Bulgaria were simply told that their safety could not be guaranteed, which was probably accurate in many cases, but was also another kind of subtle way to tell them that they were no longer wanted. Overall, these policies were fueled by a mixture of a desire to distribute former Muslim properties amongst Bulgarians and to prevent Muslim populations being used by the Ottomans as a kind of fifth column or a tool of influence in the new Bulgarian state. Ironically, by the 1890s, the official Bulgarian position had shifted somewhat as the state now desired to increase its population, tax base, and economy, whether or not those taxpaying citizens were Muslims or Christians. The reality was that hundreds of thousands of Muslims who left Bulgaria after 1879 also left with specialized skills, knowledge of how to farm specific soil types, and many other useful economic abilities. Thus, their departure, besides being sort of a human tragedy, also hurt Bulgaria's economy in a moment where it was you know, rather difficult uh, and really trying to establish itself. Now, of course, viewing people in this kind of pure economic sense is a bit cynical, but 
you know, for those governing the young Bulgarian state, the economic challenges were very real and very considerable. And again, yeah, the departure of these large numbers of Muslims made their job even more difficult. You'll also recall that many figures like Stefan Stambolov were ardent pragmatists. So this kind of thinking somewhat reflected their approach to governance. Metodieva describes the situation, writing, quote, On one hand, Muslims were exposed to the pressure of nation-building and mistreatment, forcing many to leave. On the other, the authorities tried to curb Muslim emigration through bureaucratic measures. The documents that potential migrants had to collect from various financial and administrative institutions to receive an emigration passport were numerous, and the fees constituted a considerable burden. A more serious barrier to emigration were military obligations, effective army service, or the complete payment of the exemption fee, measures that the authorities pursued with particular zeal. Military exemptions bound not only the man liable for conscription, but also the people acting as his guarantors and his family. Consequently, many Muslims, particularly those living in border regions, tried to flee to the Ottoman Empire illegally. End quote. This gets to the awkward contradictions built into the very idea of the modern Bulgarian state. Mitodieva writes how, quote, Despite the exalted rhetoric about the equality of all nationalities, there was an implicit understanding that the Bulgarians were the dominant group within the larger Narod, end quote. Narod is just the Bulgarian word for nation. She continues, writing, quote, What was even more relevant to the Muslims, Bulgarian nationalism, along with many public display, uh, displays, had a strong anti-Ottoman character, end quote. Indeed, this was a tricky problem for the young state. What should its policy be towards this large segment of its population who were legal equals, but in many ways represented, you know, an entire epoch of Bulgarian history that the government and society seemed determined to move past or even erase? A further irony Bulgaria's approach to its Muslim and other minorities was that it treated their religious representatives as the legal representatives of the entire community. Mithodieva rightly points out the irony that this basically mimicked the old Ottoman millet system. Just as Bulgarians were often governed and represented by Greek Orthodox officials, all of Bulgarian Muslims would now be represented by the Grand Mufti, whether they were Sunni or Shia, ethnically Turk or Albanian, didn't matter. In fact, Bulgarians often used Muslim and Turk interchangeably. Of course, this wasn't a uniquely Bulgarian problem. We know that Ottoman law emphasized the equality of its subjects regardless of their religion or ethnicity, but in the reality was that ethnic Turks and Muslims were more broadly the dominant group. You know, covering the Ottoman Empire in this podcast, we saw that very often, right? The, the law said one thing, but the reality was often quite different. But this brings up the question. If one of Bulgaria's main aims was to become a kind of quote-unquote normal European country, advancing beyond its quote-unquote oriental past, what role would Muslims play in this process? Yet another irony was the way in which Bulgarians quickly transitioned from being a minority in the Ottoman Empire to a majority in a new Bulgarian state, meaning Bulgaria's Muslims suddenly became viewed as a backwards minority holding the country back or at times even a group worthy of pity, where again they were so recently the dominant group within the state. While there was occasionally talk of helping to improve the difficult economic conditions of Bulgaria's Muslim minority, the reality of actually doing so was more complicated. 
This would involve getting more directly involved in these communities, potentially triggering blowback from the Ottoman government. Ultimately, though, what drove most concessions and sort of favorable policies towards Bulgaria's Muslim minority was basic politics. Bulgaria, particularly under Stambulov, wanted to foster good relations with the Ottomans in order to extract concessions in Thrace and Macedonia. In order to do that, they had to ensure decent treatment of Bulgaria's Muslims. Metodieva describes the hostage population idea I alluded to earlier, where the two states had a minority of the other's population, forcing forcing each to treat them the way they wanted their co-nationals to be treated in the neighboring country. So, you know, kind of a golden rule situation. In fact, many of Bulgaria's Muslims reported themselves as Ottoman citizens, not Bulgarian ones, and viewed their status in Bulgaria as basically temporary. For years after the Russo-Turkish War, the Sharia courts used by Bulgaria's Muslim populations even still were basically linked into the Ottoman court system. This was because there was no higher Muslim court in Bulgaria to act as a kind of court of appeals, so any appeals had to be sent to the court in Constantinople. Some in Bulgaria saw this as a kind of dent on the country's sovereignty, and there was talk about setting up an appeals court in Bulgaria, but it never really panned out. In general, though, Bulgaria wanted its Muslim population to not really be too connected with the Ottomans. But that posed a problem. Severing such ties would invite the Ottomans to sever Bulgarian ties to its co-religionists in Thrace and Macedonia. So there's a very difficult balance for Bulgarian authorities to kind of figure out how to effectively do this. Eventually, it was decided that all communication between the Muslim religious authorities in Bulgaria and those in the Ottoman Empire would be run through the Bulgarian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, acting as a kind of middleman. This was a basically balanced approach, which seemed to give officials in Sofia the sense of autonomy and control they wanted, while still allowing the country's Muslims to collaborate and work and have connections with Ottoman officials. Though, understandably, many Muslims felt that this system was quite an encroachment on their kind of independence. Another interesting element in how Bulgaria's Muslims ran their own affairs was in education. Well, as I mentioned, they were complete full Bulgarian citizens and had the right to attend the country's public schools, Matotieva points out that very few actually did. Instead, they largely maintained a network of their own private and religious schools, with even some receiving state funding. Although there was legislation governing these institutions and implementing standards for teachers and rules that, for example, the Bulgarian language should be taught, these rules were rarely enforced, either out of disinterest or fear of provoking a backlash by kind of meddling in local Muslim affairs. The result was that, you know, lax oversight and insufficient resources combined in a situation where many of the quality of those Muslim schools was very poor, particularly in rural areas. So, many Muslims ended up getting subpar educations and struggling to learn the Bulgarian language. Metodieva gives an example from 1907, when one of the higher quality Muslim schools in Ruse was inspected by the central government. The inspectors found that Bulgarian was only taught after the fourth year, and that these students could not understand Bulgarian or even write in Cyrillic, or when they did write in Cyrillic, they would write from right to left, which is the direction of the Ottoman Arabic script. An amusing quote from a reformer about education in these Muslim schools is that, quote, rote learning at all levels was another pervasive problem. To uproot the practice, 
students were encouraged to abandon memorization because it was not real learning, end quote. I found that funny because basically rote learning is still kind of at the heart of Bulgarian education today and it's still quite a problem. So I found it a bit amusing that a, a century ago in Bulgaria's Muslim schools, people were complaining about rote learning and it doesn't seem like a lot of progress has been made there. But that is by the by. An exception to all this was the Bulgarian approach to educating Pomaks, who are ethnic Bulgarians who practice Islam and mostly live in remote areas in the Rodopi Mountains. Here, schools were seen as a key tool in building the loyalty of this group, pushing them to focus more on their ethnicity than their religion, again, to make them more Bulgarian than Muslim. The policy had mixed results, but this is far from the last time we'll cover such attempts, and, well, yeah, don't have time to get into them in too much detail right now. However, the fact that so many of Bulgaria's Muslims were regular citizens also posed a problem with army conscription. Though we don't have specific accounts, it's not difficult to imagine that serving in the Bulgarian army was awkward at best for them. The highly nationalistic environment of the army and the reality that most Bulgarians saw their most likely enemy in a war being the Ottomans would have made the experience of being a Muslim and or Turk in that environment just really uncomfortable, if not you know, downright dangerous. Add to that that you know, most soldiers went through hazing and, well, we have records of things like complaints over food. Obviously, military canteens weren't super eager to go out of their way to figure out how to serve halal food for Muslims. And some officers complained that it was difficult to lead their men because they couldn't understand Bulgarian. Unsurprisingly, many Bulgarian officials had their own concerns over Muslims serving in the army, worrying about their loyalty. Some feared that arming and training them could turn them into an even more dangerous fifth column. So, there was a question as to whether or not they should serve like other citizens or be treated differently. One compromise from 1878 onwards was a rule that Muslims should make up no more than a third of any particular unit, so at least they should be spread out. Ultimately, it was decided that Muslims would be given the right to pay a substantial sum of money, initially about a thousand leva, in order to be exempted from mandatory military service. Despite this, however, by the 1890s, about 20% of the Bulgarian army were Muslims, meaning they served roughly equally to their portion of the population by that time, which is not that surprising because, as we kind of covered already, you know, Bulgaria's Muslim population by the, this time was relatively poor, so not many could come up with such a large sum of money to get out of service. The other issue was Muslim participation in Bulgarian politics. Again, they had equal voting rights, and there were Muslims in Bulgaria's governing bodies from the Russian occupation onwards. However, they faced a lot of unique challenges in this respect. Often, their Bulgarian language wasn't sufficient to fully participate in debates and discussions. There were also early debates over whether they should accept ballots, well, basically whether the government should accept ballots that are written in a language other than Bulgarian. Again, you know, leading to potentially disenfranchisement of Muslims. Ultimately, it was decided that the language of Bulgaria's National Assembly would indeed be Bulgarian, which makes some sense, but this undoubtedly kept many would-be Muslim politicians from fully participating in Bulgaria's politics. Now, it was hoped that Bulgaria's education system would eventually solve this language problem, but as we'll soon see, despite it technically being required, Many Muslims growing up in Bulgaria did not learn the language. 
And of course, none of this changed the fact that Bulgaria's substantial Muslim population was also an excellent source of votes for its political parties. As a group, they weren't really tied directly to any single party, though they were largely supportive of Stambolov's wing of the liberals due to Stambolov's policy of good relations with the Ottomans and opposing Russian expansion. But when parties did court the Muslim vote, importantly, they rarely appealed to Muslim voters directly. Instead, they tended to work with community leaders. And unfortunately, many of the negative aspects of this political dynamic continue today, but, well, I'll refrain from digressing into contemporary Bulgarian politics. Although, at least leaders today don't court votes by threatening Muslim populations that I'm aware of, but there are cases in the late 19th century of Muslim leaders threatening their people with violence if they don't vote the way the Muslim leader has kind of negotiated and agreed that they will. One interesting case came with the fall of Stambolov. He had worked with a local Muslim leader to govern their communities and try to help them do this, but when Stoilov came to power, he deliberately destroyed all of those structures. Now, this is somewhat liberating for many Muslims who resented their leaders and didn't feel they really represented them, but it also created a lot of chaos in these communities that took many years to resolve. Overall, another interesting element Metodieva brings up is that Muslims largely supported the government in power, whichever one it was, because not doing so could be seen as a challenge to Bulgarian rule, which makes some sense, but it also shows how Bulgaria's Muslims were in such a difficult situation when it comes to advocating for themselves, and just yeah, why it was so difficult for them to kind of navigate the political waters. Metodieva sums it up this way, writing, quote, Many Muslims felt the realities of Bulgarian politics were particularly detrimental to them. They were also viscerally aware that all Bulgarian parties unscrupulously exploited Muslim votes only to gain power. Municipal parties were no different. Even if Muslims got seats in parliament or municipal councils, they had virtually no influence. Their erstwhile Bulgarian allies forgot about them until they needed their votes again to pass legislation or to use them in other ways. End quote. Now, beginning in the 1890s, some argued for the creation of a Muslim political party in response to all these challenges. However, finding a single set of policies to represent that entire community was a nearly impossible task. Mithodieva writes how, quote, Muslim parliamentarians and their electorate, consumed by partisan passions spurred by the short-sightedness and Bulgarian intrigue, remained irreparably divided, end quote. Often, the treatment of Bulgaria's Muslims would be used as an argument towards the Western world for Bulgaria's civilizational superiority vis-a-vis -vis the Ottomans. Or, as Metodieva put it, quote, By casting themselves as civilized and tolerant towards the Muslims, Bulgarians sought to affirm their cultural and moral superiority over the Ottomans and draw great power sympathy for their cause in the empire, end quote. Ironically, the Ottomans would occasionally make the exact opposite argument to emphasize their own civilizational superiority based on arguments that they treated their minorities better than the Balkan states. Still, I think this is all more realpolitik than genuine concern on the part of the Bulgarian authorities or the Ottoman authorities, but well, that's just my opinion. Now, all this brings us to the rise of a re Muslim reform movement within Bulgaria during the 1890s. This occurred partly as a result of the liberalization of Bulgaria's politics, particularly once the tight grip of Stefan Stambolov loosened. At the same time, 
the liberalization of the press also helped foster a set of independent Muslim newspapers, which could act as centers of debate, discussion, and advocacy for reform. Lastly, this period also saw the coming of age of a new generation of young Muslims who had little or no memories of Bulgaria pre-1878. Now let's start by discussing the Muslim press. Firstly, these newspapers faced many challenges, particularly in obtaining printing equipment for publication in the Arabic script Ottoman used at the time. They also had to be more careful when criticizing the government, again, as they could easily be labeled as enemies of the state. Ironically, though, the first journal for Muslim affairs in Bulgaria was founded by the government itself in Sofia shortly after the Russo-Turkish War. Its intent was to provide Bulgaria's Muslims with translation of legislation and generally encourage them to be good citizens according to the model envisioned by the central government, so to just kind of make them more aware of what the government was doing. Over time, though, independent Muslim newspapers in Bulgaria would also become strong critics of the Ottoman regime and often strong advocates for the growing Young Turk movement, leading some to cooperate with basically yeah, making it uh, somewhat common that the Bulgarian government and the Ottoman government would work together to kind of suppress them. And well, I suppose this is as good as time as I need to introduce you to the Young Turks. Like Bulgaria, the movement got its start around 1878, but obviously for different reasons. During the brief two years in which the Ottoman constitution of 1876 was active, many secret societies flourished throughout the empire. These groups were heavily made up of young military cadets and medical university students who wanted the Ottoman Empire to reintroduce a parliament and to focus on reforming itself. Now, this was, at its core, an elite movement, fascinated by and wanting to emulate the scientific and political progress of the West. Although its public stance on Islam was kept ambiguous, members privately saw it as backwards and a hindrance to progress in the Ottoman Empire. Eventually, in 1889, the Committee for Union and Progress, the CUP, was founded by medical students and acted as a formal organization of the movement. By 1894, however, the Ottomans were leading crackdowns and arrests on its members, pressing many into exile. Now, the Young Turk movement will operate largely from exile, with major centers being Paris, Geneva, and Cairo, although, as mentioned, there's a fair amount of activity in Bulgaria. And so, the Young Turks don't really come into their own again until the early 20th century, so I'll discuss them more when I get to those episodes. But, for the context of this episode, you got some idea of who they are. Many of the young reformers coming, reformers coming to prominence in the 1890s were associated with the Young Turks. Now, this is in part because Bulgaria functioned as a very convenient base for them, being so close to the Ottoman capital. But also because... In their eyes, the fate of Bulgaria's Muslims was a kind of cautionary tale. It demonstrated the dangers of a weak and failing Ottoman government and showed why it so needed reform. Unsurprisingly, the policy of the Bulgarian government towards the Young Turks varied depending on the political mood. So, for example, when Stambulov was trying to get into the Sultan's good graces, they were suppressed. Other times, they were sort of tacitly allowed. But both sides knew that their ultimate goals, independence and territorial expansion for Bulgaria, and imperial reform and revival for the Young Turks, were deeply contradictory. So, occasionally they would be allies of convenience, but in the end, they were basically set to be enemies. But that didn't mean that Sofia couldn't use the Young Turks as a bargaining chip. 
offering to clamp down on Young Turk newspapers or arrest and extradite movement leaders in order to gain concessions from the Ottomans. Overall, though, the Young Turks in Bulgaria and the regime in Sofia had to walk a careful line, balancing long- and short-term goals, internal and external political considerations. A quick side note here. Mitotieva mentioned how an article came up with a mocking nickname for Sultan Abdul Hamid II. So his regime is referred to as the Hamidian regime, and there were reports that if he were overthrown, the Sultan planned to flee to Russia. So an article labeled him Hamitikov, you know, a Russianized version of his name. Well, that's not so clever, it's pretty basic, but that an Ottoman Hamit, Hamitkov, would mean kind of unreasonable dog ignorant, roughly translated. So I just thought that was amusing and wanted to share. Now, another factor hampering the Muslim reform movement by the 1890s was the poverty, which was increasingly common amongst Bulgaria's Muslim communities. By this point, 85% of Muslims in Bulgaria, both Turks and Pomaks, were farmers. Overall, their wealth had declined pretty significantly since 1878 owing to factors like the declining size of the communities as many emigrated, poorer access to markets now that they were more or less out of the Ottoman Empire, and generally just being seen as second or third priorities by Bulgarian authorities, as well as the occasional outright discrimination. Also, the gradual dissolution of Vakufs, a kind of religious nonprofit organization used in the Ottoman Empire to legally pass down wealth in families, also played a role. These institutions didn't fit easily within the new Bulgarian legal system and were repeatedly targeted. And as they faded, Muslim communities lost access to many of the services and wealth that they had provided and held on to. But while wealth was a real challenge in the community, many young reformers pointed to a lack of education as the main problem. Aside from schools, the main locations where education and community building happens were in reading rooms, which were kind of similar to the Bulgarian Chitarishtes. So we talked about those before. But that kind of wraps up this overview. Ultimately, there's no easy answer to the question of, you know, where's the homeland of Bulgaria's Muslims? You know, what, how should their relationship to Bulgaria be? Do they belong, quote unquote, in Bulgaria or in the Ottoman Empire? Unfortunately, their difficult status is one of the many byproducts of the creation of nation-states in Europe. While such states provided identity and a sense of belonging for many of their populations who shared the same identity as that new nation-state, by definition, they excluded others, leaving them without a clear place where they may belong. Facing immense challenges in identity and education, Bulgaria's Muslims also faced frequent poor treatment by officials and everyday Bulgarians alike. It's hardly surprising that many felt distinctly unwanted, despite official proclamations of equality in the new country. And, well, more than that, we'll just have to cover more in the coming seasons to better understand. But I hope you've got some sense of who these people were, what were their challenges, how they were kind of struggling to fit into this new Bulgarian state. And that'll take it for this episode. It was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music is by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more on the link in the description.